0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Amy Knight.
1: Hello from Nashville.
0: I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.TV, and this week, we're talking to Kent Beck. Howdy, y'all. Now, Kent, uh, for people who've been around the programming community while you need no
2: introduction, but I'm assuming oh, we probably oh, wait, have... Wait, wait, wait. That's, that's not actually true. The, the things I've worked on need no introduction but it's not uncommon for me to walk into a, a room of a hundred developers and go, oh, really? well, of course, you know who I am. And no, no. <laughs> everybody <laughs> yeah, says who? Then it's a dead patterns, J unit, TDD. Oh yes, of course. We know about those things. Yeah. So
0: gotcha. go ahead and introduce me. I, I, I was just going to say, you know, we have, we have newer folks that, you know, weren't around when agile was getting big and extreme programming and TDD and yeah, all of the things that you mentioned. I mean, you've pioneered some of these things in other instances, just talking to you, it feels like you pulled together a bunch of ideas that were out there and kind of coalesced them into something. Um, But a lot of the things that you've done and a lot of the books that you've written have influenced people in in various ways. And so it's just, it's really interesting to just dive in and say, okay, um, you know, what, what, what have we learned over the last however many years? and, In particular, um, I'd like you to just give us a little bit of an update as to where you are now. Um, Because I think last time we had you on a show, I don't know if it was this show or Ruby Rogues or something else, you were working at Facebook and you were doing a bunch of other things. Um, I think you had a couple other projects in the works. And yeah, so you want to just give us an update as to where you are and then we can kind of work backward from there.
2: Yeah, I think our last conversation was, uh, I was on Ruby Rogues. Um, so four months ago now, I left Facebook after seven years there. Wow. i now uh, self or unemployed, um, a, a decompressing a bit. It a, it's a, was a pretty intense environment. Uh, I live in San Francisco. I'm traveling a lot, uh, uh, doing a lot of writing, doing art playing a lot of music, um, thinking about some crazy programming ideas, talking to lots of friends. So mm-hmm.
3: that's basically my life.
1: Taking a breather.
3: Yep. <laughs> yep. Very cool. Seven years is a long time. That's like 60 computer years and regular years, right? Seven <laughs> computer years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Facebook was 2,000
2: employees when I joined and 25,000 when I left. Wow. Wow, that's a big
3: change, so what were you doing? Let's talk about what you were doing at Facebook so that people know that and... sure so uh, uh
2: I found a unique engineering culture there and and wanted to understand one that didn't make much sense to me, and I wanted to understand it so i uh my first take was to dive in and and as a developer and quickly found out that. My strengths as a developer didn't match the kind of I, I'm not a it didn't match the, the needs of the organization. So I'm not a big complexity guy. I, I can't make complicated things work. I can make simple things work and sometimes I can make complicated things simple, but um, uh, just like hand me a gigantic system and say, dive in and make these crazy changes to it. And I'm just lost. So after about a uh, year of trying to do that, um, a friend of mine, Peter Dimov, suggested, well, you've done this coaching stuff. Why don't you try just coaching? So I began what was my real career at Facebook, which was uh, uh, mostly one on one coaching of of uh, engineers with potential. Um, I in, in the end, I probably coached 200 engineers directly. Uh, I ran a coaching program that that matched up senior engineers with junior engineers for coaching um, that re- reached hundreds more. I wrote classes that thousands of engineers at Facebook took. Um, I did lots of writing internally and externally, a uh, fair amount of speaking, um, and uh, spent the last year, year and a half there um, studying teamwork.
1: So when you say coaching, because I want to dig into this a little bit more, what exactly were you coaching these newer developers on?
2: Well, I'm going into it. I hoped it would be technical stuff. You know, the cool uh, TDD uh, patterns. Uh, uh, nothing, never, 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 never. Mm. Smart engineers can teach themselves some new API or read some technical paper and go and implement it. That's, I mean, you're you're kind of automatically good at that. The things that were always the issues uh were people y stuff, uh imposter syndrome, uh, attention deficit disorder, uh personal issues, interpersonal issues, uh, communication, perfectionism. It's all that kind of stuff. And one of my advantages as an old engineer is that I I've I've been through all of those things. So uh an engineer would come to me and it t- took Took a few. So the uh, a coaching engagement would be 12 one hour conversations, usually twice a week. So it's pretty intense. Um, and it would take a while to build up trust. So wh- whatever the first thing they said was the problem was never the problem. But uh, <laughs> after eight, maybe 10 conversations, the, the real issue would come up. They're like, OK, OK, you know, actually. Uh, My manager is a total idiot and every manager I've ever had has been a total idiot. And, you know, then you have to find a polite way of saying, statistically speaking, how likely it is that every every manager you've ever had is a total idiot. Like, could we do a little common cause failure analysis on this? And uh, then I can tell them stories. Right. Once once you get to the real issue, then you can go, oh, and sometimes it's from from my past and sometimes it was from my immediate past. So, you know, somebody says, oh, I w- wrote this uh, this email and and somebody just erupted at me and I have no idea. I can say, oh, I did that last week. Let me tell you this story. And I think a, a lot of the of the power of the coaching just came from the lack of uh, uh, came from discharging shame right? People come to me and say, oh, I'm so uniquely broken. And I say, yes, you're broken, but it's not unique.
1: One thing I always say (laughs) that I feel like I had to learn in order to kind of get over a pretty big hurdle myself in this industry was this, like the problems that you tackle a lot of times require a lot of mental space, a lot of focus. And if your focus is if, even if you have like a tiny bit of that focus getting taken up by, you know, something that is just kind of like consuming you, something that is not part of the technical problem, but it's starting to take away, you know, parts of your brain space. Like I just say, you to sum it up, like you have to learn how to spend your mental energy wisely in this occupation because yeah. your mental energy is limited. And if you're spending it on that kind of stuff, you're not going to be able to tackle the problem at hand.
2: Huh. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, And not- your, your emotional energy too.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so,
2: sometimes what you need is permission to go take care of whatever it is. You know, your yeah you're sick. Well, go away. Can, have, this conversation is not as important as you going and sitting by your sick kid. So yeah. go do that and then come back when they feel better.
0: Well, yeah. and I can, I can relate to this. I mean, I've been pretty overwhelmed with a lot of things that I have going on. Um, a lot of emotional stuff happened over the last two months. I've talked about that a little bit on the show. I don't need to elaborate on it, but um, yeah, you know, I finally just emailed all of my co-hosts and said, can you guys handle the shows for three weeks so I can take some time to figure my crap out? And everybody kind of got it. It was like, yeah, you, you go do the human thing for a while and we'll do the podcast thing and we'll be here when you get back. And sometimes, yeah, you just need that permission. You need somebody to say, you know what? It's okay. We get it. All right.
1: Definitely. I know, at least for me, like coming into this, you know, I wasn't always a developer. It is really odd to me when some things happen in life, and my coworkers say, like, "Go home, get some rest," or or something like that, because I'm so used to, like, as an athlete, that that wasn't a thing usually. Like, you just keep going, even if you're injured, until the point where like you just can't do it anymore. Um, but in this kind of field, you really need to be at your best to do your best work. It's not something that you can have along like playing injured for too
2: long. One of my friends at Facebook Blake Matheny introduced me to the vacation in place. So sometimes you come in, you sit down at your desk, you work for an hour and it's just not happening. Like you just the gears you're grinding and you just can't get going and that's when you take a vacation in place. So you, you can spend the rest of the day at your desk. But if you need to Watch, binge watch, you know, something on Netflix, or or read some just really trashy novel, or you just do it, and no shame. You're taking a vacation, you just happen to be doing it at your desk, and uh, the next day, man, you feel so much better. But there doesn't need to be shame around that. Like there's days it's just not happening, so don't try and force it to happen because that only makes it worse, and then you lose confidence, and they come in the next day, you're like, oh, I'm still behind. And uh, I tried my hardest and uh, and I didn't make any progress. So what are my chances of making progress today? And down you go on the spiral as opposed to just admitting there's days that are magic, absolute magic. And there's days when your brain's just not set up for it. And okay, that happens. And so when that happens, you move on to the next day.
1: So what have you learned in your time doing this? Do you have any like trigger points that you are aware of that you need to watch out for to like know that you need to step away? Or do you see patterns in people that like I can try to be aware of as I'm approaching this or my friends who are doing this patterns in them that I can see that I can help them to be like, hey, you know, you need to take a break.
2: I, I think it's hard to answer. It's hard for me to answer that question generically the nice thing about coaching and and having these in-depth conversations is you get to know each other and so you can start to see the patterns and and then i can say uh okay amy you know last week you said this and this and then this happened and i'm hearing that same stuff again like what's that about but until you until i get to know somebody individually there's like there's not a way to do that it's just kind of generic that I know of.
1: That makes
0: sense. I'm I'm curious. You mentioned that you were doing this at work at Facebook. And most of the professional environments I've been in as a, as a developer, if we're talking about problems that need to be solved, they're almost always technical. Like we don't have these kinds of conversations, right? Unless somebody's having a conflict with somebody else and the boss gets involved and says, you know, It looks like you're having this problem, you know, take somebody aside, looks like you're struggling with this, take somebody else aside. looks like you're having a problem with this. And then it kind of comes around, but it only happens when things come to a head. So how do we, how do we approach this in the workplace so that we can have a healthy environment so that we can allow people to have those human moments?
2: Well, I I had the good fortune at my first job to work with Ward Cunningham, who was my mentor, who we went on to invent the wiki and be blamed for the collapse of Western civilization. But, uh, <laughs> um, and he and I would have these conversations. We would, we, you know, that we, we, we call them walk and talk. So we would just go walk around the Tektronix campus and we'd have, sometimes they'd be really deeply technical conversations and sometimes they'd be kind of philosophical and sometimes they would be quite personal um what i noticed when i got to facebook is there was as you said there was just no forum for having those conversations everybody we'd over optimized development as if the the you know two hours a week that you might spend on those conversations were better spent coding well no duh but uh, you could measure the, the effects of the coding and you couldn't measure the effects of having these conversations. So they just kind of got optimized out of everybody's workflow. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah very sense. interesting.
0: I'm just curious. I mean, what is it costing us? Is there a way to measure that?
2: I, I think a measurement is the, is the wrong metaphor to use. Okay. I think the richness of human relationships, you know, and as engineers, of course, I I immediately think, well, how many relationships and on which, you know, can I have a five point scale for my, you know, the different dimensions of my relationships and well, you know, true, but I, I think that's uh, entirely the wrong direction to take it. Hey, have I had a good conversation with somebody? So uh, I'm, I, uh, uh, What's the polite way to say this? I became single again a year and a half ago. And one of the things I discovered in that process was just how valuable it was to have a two-hour dinner conversation with somebody. You just sit down, have a talk. It didn't have to be serious, you know, for uh, hanky. What? It, just to talk about stuff. And two hours later, I felt much, much better. Now, I'm not a people person, so I don't want to do that all the time, which is what eventually got to me about coaching but um uh just having that having a good talk with somebody a couple times a week makes my life much much richer if sometimes that person's a technical person we can talk about what it's like to be you know san francisco is a very particular kind of tech scene uh (laughs) particular. Yes. I'm just going to stick with that as my adjective and let everybody fill in the rest of it. Um, but, um, like uh, just being able to sit down and go, this seems weird. Is this weird? Yeah, that's weird. Ah, okay. Then I feel much better. Like then I can participate in the weirdness or avoid it. And I don't feel bad. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with me that I think it's strange that people would act in this way.
0: Yeah, hmm. that makes sense. Hmm.
3: So, did you um, you spent all this time at Facebook doing this, and you you left, and you said uh, you did? Did you sort of imply that part of the reason that you finally decided after seven years to go was because you weren't a peopley person, and it and it was time to move on to something new? Yeah, no, you want the brutally honest answer? I got fired. <laughs> That is a brutally honest answer. Very
2: vulnerable I, too. I spent a year and a half studying teamwork, and, the dis- and with the intention of of trying to help teams work better at Facebook. Um, I saw a lot of great individual contribution, but the collaboration was difficult. And in the end, I had not made any impact on how teams worked together. The, some of that was uh, my responsibility, and some of it was the way the incentives are set up at Facebook team teamwork hard.
1: How so, would they, oh, oh, sorry, no, no, no go, go ahead. ahead, jump in. Well, I was going to ask, how do they measure that to say that you weren't making a difference? Well,
2: it was always difficult to measure whether I was making a difference as a coach too. I mean, in, in the end, I, I mean, a few years in, uh, they uh, the HR did a study of my former students versus their peers as closely as they could match them. And my former students were twice as likely to get promoted in the year following coaching as their peers. So that kind of uh, I, I could ride that for a while, you know, because it was c- numerically clear that coaching was a good thing. I, I think that that's underselling it, but at least it's something you can measure. Teamwork is not something that, like, I thought I was making some contributions in a difficult situation, but not enough. You know, like, could I have done better? Sure. Did I get a, some unlucky? Yes. Uh, but in the end, yeah, in a, in a culture where if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. It's really hard to make a case for, uh, diffuse uh widespread long-term impact and that was kind of where I got to that's part of it and the other part of it is I just pissed off a lot of people
1: that's that's what I was going to guess is you <laughs> seem like oh well, no 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 hear me out I mean this in a good way I mean this in a good way some of the engineers or managers that I've worked under that I look up to the most is they have a belief on something and they they believe in it very strongly and they're they're open to considering other options and they will look at those other options. But if they have a strong belief in something, they're not going to be swayed on it. And I actually admire that versus just like, you know, whichever way the wind blows, you're going to follow that. So if you just, if you just don't see eye to eye on something like that could actually be a good thing that you don't just cave and say, okay.
2: Yeah, I mean, no, certainly persistence is one of the strengths of my career. Um, but uh, communication, what's the Oscar Wilde phrase? A uh, Gentleman never offends unintentionally. And I frequently offended people unintentionally. I would say stuff that seemed perfectly obvious and normal to me and just... <clears throat> I mean, I suffer
1: from this problem too <laughs> it was like a programmer thing I got in trouble for today I'm like I'm just stating the obvious why is
3: anyone
1: this? I would not be offended if someone said this to me I would want to know
2: yes exactly exactly <laughs> so I I did that except I mean I I, I had a a you know, seven years there and being well known to a lot of people, I had a fairly big um, platform internally. So when I pissed people off, I did it on a on a company wide scale. And, you know, at 2000, when when you're kind of close to the edge of success and failure, having somebody come in and lance the boil early is a really valuable thing. At 25,000, when you're when you're not nearly that close to the edge a, a boil Lancer just hurts. And especially when I, 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 I'm just the bull in the China shop. I don't know when I'm going to step on one of these landmines. Yeah. Like I, my heart goes out to my director, right? He, he covered my back a bunch of times and eventually though the trade off just tilts. It's like like, is this not worth it anymore? Okay.
0: Good enough. I'm I'm curious because, I mean, it it, it makes sense. And I'm kind of the same personality, right? Um, I mean, I've I've ticked people off by, uh, in in my picks, talking about views that aren't widely held among uh, people who listen to the show. And, you know, I've gotten some blowback on that. Um, What I'm curious about, though, is do we want to continue to talk about how we talk about difficult things? Because I think I think there's a lesson here for the listener. Uh, the other thing that I'm curious to dig into is what you learned about teamwork. Because I mean, you've been talking about this for a while. Like with, um, I mean, Extreme Programming. I mean, that was what late '90s, early 2000s. Um, yes. Late '90s. You know, so so you've been talking about this stuff for 20 years, and so I'm curious to know. Okay, so you were doing stuff that made teamwork a lot easier as far as practices went. You know what? What did you learn at Facebook? So, do we want to talk about crucial conversations, or do we want to talk about teamwork? Because, because I, I think I think there's stuff in what we're talking about that's good for the listener. I just want to tease it out so people can latch on to it.
3: Who are you asking, Chuck? Uh, everybody. It's your show. I can't answer. <laughs> um, I like talking about the about teamwork. You know, it's it's an interesting topic. How do we how do we make our what did, what did I want to know, I know? What did you learn about teamwork while at the time you are at Facebook? So here's where I get into these.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm smiling at Amy because this is like-
1: <laughs> Let me just- I, is, I, <laughs> is, uh, yeah. I also have thoughts too when you're done. This is interesting.
2: This is a landmine territory for me. So I'm just going to speak my mind and, and we'll, we'll get there. So the the culture at Facebook- um, you got to look at what people are afraid of if you want to uh, understand culture. So what Facebook culture is afraid of is a free rider. Somebody who talks a good game, doesn't produce, and gets rewards. So to combat that, uh, counteract that... I was
0: going to say, I think that's a reasonable fear, generally. Like, it's something you want sure.
2: to learn. It depends, like, at what cost. Yeah, fair so I'm about enough. To tell, I'm, I'm about to tell you at what cost. So uh, the the focus, the 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 word that you hear from the first day is impact. You need to have impact at Facebook, and impact means to have uh, 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 individually attributable uh, uh, influence on some metric that somebody cares about, which sounds good and. And is good, especially in the early phases. So my latest um, thing is uh, is called Explore, Expand, Extract about how development, programming, management changes between the early exploratory phases, runaway growth, and the end of the mm-hmm. and the, the running out of the growth. So in exploring and expanding. Uh, impact is a great way to to measure people because uh, the largest costs are opportunity costs. Setting priorities is the hardest thing, and you want everybody thinking every day: Is this the most important thing I can do, or is it time to switch? The, that decision is as valuable as actually the as actually making decisions on the thing that you're working at. When you get to the later stages of that, though it becomes, everything's bigger, it's harder and harder to figure out what's your slice versus what's my slice. And you end up with the pie problem. The pie problem is I now have two sets of incentives. I have an incentive to make the pie bigger, but I have also have the incentive to then make my slice look bigger even if the pie is the same size or smaller. And I have to choose between those. When when you're just doing crazy stuff, you don't have to worry about this. When things are expanding crazy fast, you don't have to worry about this because the pie is just automatically getting bigger. But when when the company is big and teams are big and timeframes stretch out, all that stuff means that you got this pie problem. And if you're focused on what's your impact, what's your impact, what's your impact? And if you don't have impact, there's negative consequences. And if you have positive impact, the, the positive consequences go down. If you have, if you can't prove your impact, the negative consequences get stronger. All that is a setup for people acting in their own selfish interests. And from my perspective, that's what happened at Facebook over the last couple of years. Me wading into that and saying, okay, well, given those incentives, how are we going to encourage people to work together better? I shouldn't I should have not started because there was no way that I could succeed. Uh, So I took a tilt at the incentives. I said, "Okay, this incentive structure screwed up. Well, that's there's a lot of people bought into that incentive structure because it's served them well in the past. They know how to run the machinery of it. They're well known in the outside world for advocating this individually attributable impact. Whatever reason, or they're in a part of the company where it's still working well. So anybody, anybody who for whom this is working, uh, I'm just an irritant. Like why? No, this is what got us here. You don't understand. You know, you you you're trying to this thing that we hate more than anything else—the idea that uh, somebody's a free rider, that they're going to get rewards uh, and just be good at getting rewards instead of actually making a difference. That thing that we're most afraid of, you're telling us that's what we should take on, we should take on that risk now? And my answer is yes. At some point, the pie problem is so bad that you should just try to uh, reward good judgment instead of outcomes.
0: This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Yeah, that was
3: what, do you mean, you said, what do you mean by reward, good judgment instead of outcomes? Can you dig into that a little bit better? Sure. So
2: a uh, scenario, uh, uh, you're you're going to um, your job is to increase uh, the number of uh, thumbs ups. You have six months to do it. So you try some experiments. And since people have been trying to increase the number of thumbs ups for a long time, like all the low hanging fruit is long gone. So you try this experiment and that experiment. And, then, you know, it's maybe one's plus point. Oh one percent and the next one's minus 0.01 percent and you got six months you're gonna your evaluation is gonna come up and you need to have some number that you've improved so two months left one month left and a uh and one of your experiments says uh, a plus 0.2 percent and you're like okay this one ship this to everybody Right. The, we had an experimental group. They showed this improvement. We're going to ship this to everybody. So I get to claim my plus 0.2%. Whew. Job saved for another six months. What incentive do you have? Let's say that you're a you're an ethical, caring, thoughtful engineer. What incentive do you have to say, let me look at the possible Second-order effects of putting a right. big banner up, like zero. You don't have, like, even if you're a good person, just
3: mm-hmm. assuming for a second. That's a big assumption with this group, but okay.
2: Fair, fair, fair <laughs> uh Like, there's there's no incentive to say, you know what? Yes, we got plus point two percent, but something doesn't feel right, so I'm not going to roll this out. You're never going to do that. You're like, it's just, it's career suicide, even if that's the right thing to do. So uh, that's good judgment. You know, we'll say in this case, what you did to make more thumbs ups was a little bit, you know, a little squidgy. but there's no, like there's no reward for, for making that good judgment. So go and look at Angry Birds today versus when it was released. Yeah. Angry Birds today sucks, right? It's the it's the end result of a of a thousand experiments to increase revenue by point four percent, and the result is it's just not a fun game to play anymore. But again, hmm. th- th- there's where is the reward for the judgment that says, hey, this game that was cool that was engaging sucks. Let's make it fun again.
3: Well, just nobody's going to do that. Right. Does that make sense? That, that, yeah, that, what absolutely. I mean by judgment? So how pervasive do you think this problem is in our industry as a whole? And uh, Are there factors in the culture that are making this widespread? And is this tendency increasing, decreasing? Is it regional in the high-pressure areas of Silicon Valley where uh, – I mean – I took. I do not live in Silicon Valley. I recently took a trip down there, talking about some friends, and they were talking about how unique the culture is, especially the startup culture down in San Francisco, where you are you you are measured by how many employees your startup has. That is this crazy metric, and people rank themselves socially by how many employees your startup has. So, which is you know, boggling, mind boggling to me. I don't live in a culture at all like that. So. Yeah, is this a persuasive problem? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse?
2: Well, so compared to what? It's always the key question. Right. I can remember the days of having long, heated debates about which user interface design was better. You know, should the the size of this versus the size of that. And, you know, it was all this monkey primate behavior, people, you know, jumping around and hooting and, and you know, what, whatever monkeys do. And that I hated that. I, I'm a huge fan of, uh, uh, empirical approach to design problems like that. I think that's much, much better. I think it can only take you so far though. And we, it's so powerful when it works that we don't re- recognize when we're reaching diminishing returns for this kind of empirically obsessed approach to application development. Mm -hmm.
1: One little story I wanted to share quickly that kind of reminded me of what you were saying. So I saw a situation a while back where um, the company was kind of, they didn't really have leadership in place on purpose because they wanted to They kind of brought in a bunch of developers and they wanted, for lack of better words, to have these developers kind of like battle it out for seniority. That was never stated, but that's what was happening. And at the same time, there were some pretty aggressive deadlines in place. So what ended up happening is most of these deadlines were missed because the developers got, imagine that, (laughs) the developers got in there and there's also like a, not the greatest, you know, branching strategy going on, but these developers would like, if they finished something, they would try to like, just pick all the slow hanging fruit all over the place, refactor, um, do all this stuff. And it just became a gargantuan mess of like just horrible, horrible merge conflicts because there wasn't a lot of planning involved. And these merge conflicts like literally made the deadline slip by like two weeks. And it really just all stemmed from like this laissez fair. There was no leadership in place. People are just trying. Like there was no incentive for meeting the deadline. The incentive was how many PRs can you get up? How many lines of code can you write? Um, until finally, somebody uh, like somebody kind of stepped into a senior role because it just needed to happen, and took everybody aside and was like, "Look, if you have free time, it needs to be spent." Producing friction so that we can meet our deadlines, not going and refactoring things in the way you want just to get your lines of code up, stuff like that. So it, like, it goes back to, I think like management or or the business trying to set expectations of what your job is.
2: So. And, and some conscious thought about what kind of a society you're creating. we're we're creating every time you step into a team, you're creating a society. There's incentives in place. If if the, you know, incentives are complicated. I'm not just talking about money, but the social currency and uh, feeling of belonging and uh, feedback, being able to see the impact of what you're doing on the external, on, on your customers. There's lots of ways that, that those incentives are created, but you're creating incentives every time you build a culture like that. And people are going to sometimes behave the worst possible that way that they can given those incentives.
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is a, so one thing that I find, and this is one of the things that I try and call out when I tell people do agile, but do, do actual agile where you're talking about your processes, right? Because a lot of times what happens is, is you hire a mess of developers, they get in there and start working together. And these incentives just kind of naturally occur. And nobody talks about them. Nobody understands exactly what's going on there. Nobody understands, you know what, um, the boss seems to reward people who deliver in this manner or that manner, right? So some bosses will reward people for making them look good. And then you know, the the general vibe on the team is whoever sounds the smartest, not necessarily who delivers the best or whatever code. And and so you're talking about these social currencies that that exist, but nobody could actually tell you how that is unless you, you all sat down together and started talking about uh, how somebody got rewarded for such and such a thing. And even then people still may not get it. And so uh, I, I think one of the things that just gets me a little bit crazy is that you know, we, we talk about these systems being the apps that we build, right? And, and, you know, how well understood they are, but we don't talk about the systems that generate these systems. Um, there, there was a quote or something that was tweeted on Twitter by Brian Hogan, and he basically said, um, software is 20% code and 80% people, and yet we focus on the 20% that's the code. And that 20% is generous. And, uh, you know, it's it's it anyway, these are the things that I'm thinking about. And it's like, yeah, you know, when we're talking about teamwork, we need to be able to talk about this stuff and we need to make it safe for people to bring up the stuff that isn't quite doesn't quite make us feel safe. Right. Because if somebody's having an experience that's contrary to the culture we want to create, if we're not talking about the values our team has, if we're not making it an area where we can have an open conversation about technologies that sound insane to use might actually be the right answer. If we're not having these kinds of conversations, we're doing this process and it might be better if we pair program, but you know what, that sounds scary. And the the, the boss is a little worried about productivity. You know, it, it has to be safe to have those conversations and, and the social currency then has to be, it aligns with our values and it's getting us where we want to go. Mm-hmm. And if you're not having those conversations and you're leaving it up to kind of whatever people do and inevitably there's some part of what people do, even the best people, it really sucks.
2: Yep. It, uh, so I, I, um, a, a phrase that I used a lot was uh, with my Facebook shareholder add on. So I'd be coaching somebody and they'd be, they'd say, well, you know, I want, I don't want to take this risk because I want to make sure that I, I, you know, meet this miles, this trivial milestone by this date, as opposed to this much cooler, bigger, more uh, uh, job with uh, risk, but potential. I'd say, well, okay, now with my Facebook shareholder hat on, what I want you to do is go try this thing. I can understand that with your engineer hat on, that's, that's not attractive to you. So incentives are never going to align perfectly but when they get close to 180 degrees then we really do need to have this conversation and that's a difficult one to have uh, because people get attached to their incentive systems they get good at navigating this particular set of incentives and the idea that well maybe maybe uh, here i am and i'm a special person given this set of incentives but if we change the incentives you know, if the, the scoring rules change, maybe I'm not good anymore. No, I don't want to change the scoring rules.
3: That's true. I mean, it, it, there, there is risk. Yeah, and there could be a lot of comfort you don't want to get away from in situations like that. I'm, I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm succeeding. I don't want to risk getting to a place where I'm not succeeding.
0: Yeah, well, and you, you may be making forward progress. You know, I mean, we we could throw out the extreme example that whoever the biggest blowhard is, is getting the biggest rewards. I don't think that's generally the case, but it allows us to kind of make a safe comparison because nobody's going to identify with that, I hope. Um, But yeah, you know, so if if that's if that's the way that it works and you're the biggest blowhard, then there's some risk if you change the incentive structure that you getting up there and bloviating about some idiotic thing is not going to be bloviating. Yeah.
2: Bloviating. Yes.
0: Bloviating. This is a new word. It's a new, okay. Um, Gloviating is basically getting up and saying lots about nothing.
1: (laughs) I like this word.
0: (laughs) Anyway, um, so, but, but yeah, so if you get up and you talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and you're not accomplishing anything and then the incentive shift to people who are accomplishing something, then you have something to lose. And I think that's what we're talking about here is, yeah, so your incentive isn't just to keep talking. Your incentive is also to maintain the status quo. And so you may feel uncomfortable, or get angry, or be scared when you see things start to shift. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and work very hard to pull things back to the status quo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'd like to talk about testing and TDD and the state of that in the modern world today. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Um, so where is? Uh, obviously, I have my own opinions, but um, and for listeners who may or may not be familiar. Um, I, started, I got into testing due to Kent's uh, fantastic book on test-driven development. Is it Test-Driven Development by Example? Is that what the name of it is? Correct. Still absolutely a classic and a great way to learn TDD. So testing in general it continues to be a very popular subject, and TDD, we've, we've, we've seen this crazy explosion of Wild West technologies in the JavaScript world, and JavaScript is quickly becoming the most ubiquitous language uh, that exists out there. And you're working at a place that I'm obviously does a lot of JavaScript. So I don't know how connected you are to testing in the JavaScript world or testing in general, but where is testing at in your view today in contrast to NTDD, in contrast to where it was in 2000, 2001, when you were doing a lot of work on pushing forward things that uh, in new ways that hadn't been done before?
2: So... I wouldn't say that I have a broad-based understanding of, of where testing is in any particular uh, community. I know that there are uh, language communities where it's more of a done thing. So in Ruby, for example, tests are just, well, of course, obviously. Um, uh, there are other languages where... Uh, If something's hard to test, well, we don't we don't write automated tests for that. Um, One of the lessons for me at Facebook is I uh, I learned to treat tests as a form of feedback. And uh, I I came in with a very. Dogmatic approach, like a, a dogmatic approach to testing, of course, you're writing tests. And what I discovered is it's a trade off. If you're unlikely to make decision, uh, make mistakes in logic. And if you make mistakes in logic, it's uh, unlikely to be expensive. And the mistakes that you make, that you do make only show up in production and can't be reproduced in a micro kind of testing environment. Then writing automated tests in the. TDD kind of style doesn't buy you anything. If you, if you just try some stuff, you you try out every small scale test you can think of and everything works and you put it in production, and it fails. You should have just put it into production to begin with. So test for me is part of a trade-off. Uh, I, I uh, for fun, um, started writing a... Version of Smalltalk from scratch, uh, to, uh, from start building a bytecode virtual machine on up. And I did it at the entirely test first, and I absolutely loved it <laughs> because, because I love this feeling that I always have something to do next. I always have a bite sized chunk to do next. Um, if I can't figure out how to write a test, then I need to take a break. Uh, Even if I don't know how to implement something, I can almost always figure out how to test for it. So write the test. Uh, If I have a test that's broken, I can almost always figure out how to get it to pass. So I do that. And if I have some kind of janky code, I I might be able to figure out how to clean it up or not. So I always have something I can do to move forward. What kills me as a programmer, what kills my productivity is not how slow I go when I'm programming. It's how long I don't program. Hmm. So for me, given my peculiarities, uh, having that TDD kind of workflow is is really, really helpful. Not everybody's like me. Um, Not all problems. uh, Do the uh, is it obvious how to write tests? You know, you're writing some complicated UI code. How do you write tests for this? Maybe easy, maybe hard. Um, I'm kind of meandering a bit. Can you uh, have I accidentally answered your question at any point? in that? <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, I don't think that my the point was just to answer my question, but really to kind of get the thoughts of you know one of the creators of TDD as to what tests are like uh, today, how how your tests of how your thoughts about testing have changed. But let me let me follow this up with something a little bit more concrete that you. Uh, I, don't, I doubt that you're very familiar with Angular. I don't know if you are. Uh, right. But uh, there are similar facilities and other front end uh, frameworks where uh, it's becoming very popular, it's going to be component, and then I've got a template to go with it. And now these, uh, it's getting more and more popular to t- say, hey, I want to test not just my component and its code, but I want to test the template." with it, But still in a sort of unit test, whether you call it a unit test or an integration test, but still really a unit test manner. It's very isolated. It's just this component, but I'm calling the unit, the component, and the template together. And the amount of work and overhead and setup to do that, at least in Angular land, is significant. So as an example, when I I, I do a lot of teaching of workshops about testing Angular, and I show that, hey, if I were to write this test, as a unit, a plain old just unit test where I'm just constructing the component as a class in an isolated manner, and I write a test to get some functionality, it took me like, you know, eight lines of setup code. And that includes white space and a few other things. And if I do it in this, the component and the template together, and I'm writing essentially the same test, it took me like 120 lines of setup code. Again, including a reasonable amount of white space and other things. And so there's this inherent added complexity going on. I'm assuming that this is uh, the type of stuff that was less prevalent back in 2000. We're seeing these new explosions of how do I, I I know the testing is good. And so I'm giving this as a single example. I know the testing is good and I want, I like unit testing and I want to test, but now there's new stuff that's coming along. There's frameworks where I want, you know, my template exists and I want to be able to test that. Um, We got mobile now that is all over the place and it has similar issues, right? So has, has testing evolved, unit testing specifically, has it evolved, but I guess any automated testing, has it evolved to the point where these are, are we solving these problems effectively or are we not solving these problems effectively and it's, we're due for some innovation maybe on the testing front?
2: So whenever I have trouble testing something, It's not my testing tools that there are the problem. It's it's a design problem that just where testing happens to be the the first finger that's that's poked the sore spot. So, um, uh, and just this happened so many times to me that I'm that I dive right into that. So I would turn the question around and say, uh, going back to first principles, your testing is about. Uh, double checking, right? You, you, write the, you write the same idea in code and in an example, and you make sure that the two things match. So I would look at templates and say, what kind of mistakes do people tend to make? Is it possible to foolproof it so they can't possibly make those mistakes? What For whatever's left, how do you double check a template? Whatever that means. That might lead you to templates look very different than the templates that you have today. But as a, as a framework developer, I'm thinking of functionality that I want to write. I'm not thinking how are people going to, how are people going to test this? So I'm not surprised that we end up with frameworks that are difficult to test, but that doesn't mean that's the only way to write a framework for that functionality. I think Mm -hmm. there is a design problem here that says, how would, how would this be recast if double checking in this example versus universal style
3: was a higher priority. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it seems to me like, for example, Rails is an example of a framework that was built where the concept of double checking was. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't even call it an afterthought in a lot of these things, these frameworks. Because in a lot of frameworks, it was like, oh, it has to be testable. But the idea of what is easy. And what is hard is a difficult concept sometimes to grasp and then it can quickly balloon and get away from you. And all of a sudden oh, this is a little bit harder than I thought it would, or than I feel like it needs to be right. And to go back and re re architect the entire thing such that this aspect easy is now useless because there's so many other benefits that are coming out. So we're just going to deal with this. The fact that this got harder than I wished it would have been right.
2: Well, maybe it's not so bad that parts of the code are hard to test. Like it's all trade-offs. So, right. what, if if what you have to give up is much more painful, if, if what you get by just letting some of the logic be hard to test is is valuable, if, if making it easier to test would cause lots of pain, then don't do it. But double checking is just a pa- such a powerful workflow. It's such a powerful principle that I want to include it in the things that I do because it helps me sleep at night. You know, the, uh, the help helps me sleep when the wind blows. I love that
1: phrase. That that was going to be kind of my question. If, if you are just playing around with something on your own, uh, at what point do you actually write tests? Do you write them just if you're coding something up for fun, do you start with tests because you feel that that helps you understand the problem better or your solution is cleaner?
2: Depends. Um, So the the explore, expand, extract stuff that I talked about earlier. When you're exploring, you have an idea. The biggest risk factor is how are users going to behave? You know, if I put some user interface in front of you, how are you going to respond to that? So I want to shorten the path between my having this crazy idea and observing how you treat that idea out in the wild. If tests help me answer that question quicker, I absolutely want to write them. Uh, If tests slow that feedback loop down, then I absolutely don't want to write them. Uh, For me, like this, the project that I was was talking about, this small talk virtual machine, it was absolutely essential to my workflow to be able to like, the the API is obvious, the uh, and, and clean. I I know where I'm going. Um, the technical complexity is going to be difficult. I'm more likely to panic technically and get into one of these stalled states. So that's me coding for fun, but it's absolutely necessary for me to write tests in order to complete that. If I'm if I just want to like. Hey what about an interface like this? I'll slap it together however I have to slap it together. Does that answer your question?
1: It does. And that's actually uh I really appreciate your practical answer there from somebody who like wrote the book on testing. I appreciate that you give an answer that is super practical like that. It's not like you always do it.
3: So I want to ask one final question though. So what's next for Kent Beck?
2: Uh, I am in a career exploration mode. And one of the lessons that I took from this, uh, from explore expand extract is when you're exploring, the goal is to make experiments so cheap and so safe that you can just try everything. So uh, I'm trying a lot, a little bit of a lot of things. Uh, I'm uh, trying some art, uh, some music, uh, I'm working on a business comic book. Uh, I'm working on th- this goofy uh, small talk from scratch, I'm working on a uh, systems thinking workshop, uh, j- just enough consulting to uh, get cash flowing and, uh, and keep the lights on, but just trying a little bit of a lot of things. Uh, honestly, what my hope is that one, one of my weirder experiments will pop and, Three years from now, I'll be able to say, oh, yeah, I make my living with illustration or I don't know, whatever, something crazy. People like what? You can't make money doing that. Well, actually, it turns out you can. I'm also do uh, I'm writing a book about uh, about my Facebook experiences and and this distinction this really fundamental distinction between how you behave when you don't know how the external world's going to react, that's exploration, how fundamentally the game changes when you something sort of accidentally takes off and you have to scale it. And then, again, the game changes when scaling becomes um, routine and you can make predictions and make estimates. So things like, um, Amy, like your question about testing, when I'm exploring, I'm much less likely to write automated tests. In extraction that, you know, this code's going to live for 10 years, whatever, absolutely write tests or estimates versus no estimates. If this is the first time you've ever done this and you're just exploring, don't, don't estimate that. You have no clue. Just do it until something else seems like what you ought to be doing. If you're extracting, you know, you got a big team and this is the 50th feature like this. They've added, sure, absolutely estimate that. Um, so... uh, That's something I uncovered maybe two years ago, and it really fundamentally changed the way that I look at, wow, everything. Programming language, choice, management style, capital allocation, you name it. That was a long-winded way of saying, I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but the thing is, is that... Uh, I, I think the two things that I pulled from that is that, you know what, even Kent Beck doesn't always know what's coming next. And the other thing I pulled from it is, is it's okay when you don't know what to do next, to try a bunch of stuff and see what works for you.
1: Just keep going. Yeah. Sometimes you can just do it, take it a day at a time.
3: Yep. Just keep spamming. I'm keep a big
1: swimming. proponent of only setting short-term goals because there's so much in the long term that is completely out of our control. That you're better off setting little short-term goals once you reach the short-term goal then you set another short-term goal and you're going to accomplish more that way than like a five ten year goal because who knows what happen?
2: and the big changes in my career i never guessed two weeks before they happened i wouldn't you would have said if you would have said hey kent you're going to go to work for facebook for seven years and (laughs) i'm a goat farmer in southern oregon i'm just like you're crazy yeah. So I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it's just uh, I want to keep opening up options, especially in this exploration phase. I want to let's try things. Let's talk to different people. Travel's really good for this. Conversation's really good for this. And then something's going to pop. Like yesterday, I had three job offers and it was like, I'm not looking for a job. You don't understand. Oh, but maybe one of these is going to be the thing that I do now.
1: You need to check out the algorithms to live by book. It talks a lot about okay. that stuff. Anyways.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to look out, you know, five to 10 years, but I don't get too specific. Like, I, I kind of know where I want to be with my family. I know what kind of people I want my kids to be. Um, you know, those kinds of things that, that really matter. And even then, I'm open to changing that. And then, yeah, the short term is, you know, how, how, what am I doing to get there? And then what else is going to make me happy?
3: You know, I find that the lot farther I look out, it gets, you know, certainly less, more vague, right? Less exact. Although I do find that at a certain point in the future, it gets really exact as I know exactly what I'm going to be doing about 100 years in the future. There you go. i confident <laughs> about that. Awesome.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, let's do some picks. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash jabber. Amy, do you want to start us with picks?
1: Yep, I do. Uh, so I was actually talking to uh, one of the principal developers where I work the other day. Um, we go on a lot of walks and stuff just to kind of take a break. And I was just kind of asking him, like, one thing as you know, I want to get better and better. Um, Is just like trying to increase the amount of stuff that I can keep in my brain at at one time. So he actually pointed me to there's a Wikipedia page for it for um, there's like all these various uh, in it's called in back, but I guess I would equate it to like playing the game Simon, uh, if people remember that as a kid where like it you have to press like. Certain colors in a certain order and it changes and how many times you have to press them So it's like building up kind of that stack in your head and just like flexing that mental muscle And there's actually neuroscience behind that that it's going to, you know, help increase um, your brain space for that. So that's going to be um, and That's going to be my pick for today is that I, I didn't realize when I was little my obsession with playing the game Simon that maybe it would have actually helped me <laughs>
3: Awesome. Joe, what are your picks? Um, all right. So I'm just going to have one pick today. And that is the the book that I mentioned before, Test-Driven Development by Example, by our guest today. Um, it has definitely, I be, I think that this is probably the book that has affected me and my career more than any other single book. Um, and not, I wouldn't have expected it at the time, but because... I got into test driven development because I found that to be something I identified with a lot. And then testing as a whole, it led to just a lot of, it slowly meandered myself and my career um, in a lot of places that I didn't expect them to be and were definitely very meaningful and, um, and highly, effect, highly affected my, my career over the past uh, 13 years since I read it in about 2005. So if you haven't read it, I highly recommend you read it. Uh, it hasn't become dated at all. It's timeless uh, classical advice about learning tester involvement. And it makes an excellent gift.
1: <laughs>
3: <Yes>. <laughs> awesome.
1: Can I just button really quick and say bye in person or semi in e sure. person? <laughs> uh, it was awesome having you on. So thank you so much for you know taking time today. So.
2: Thank you so much, Amy. I
1: appreciate it. i got to get back to work. Bye, guys. Okay, bye. bye. Chuck, uh, I hope you get some rest.
0: Yeah, I'm working on it. Okay. Bye, Amy. Bye. Bye, Amy. So a couple of things that came to mind while we were talking today are a few books that I've read. One is uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by uh, Lencioni. A great book. And that talks a lot about some of these ideas that we talked today about teamwork and what works and what doesn't. Um, another book that I recently read was Crucial Accountability. And so it talks about expectations, setting expectations, and how to talk about uh, mishandled expectations. So I'm just going to pick those two books and throw those out there as, as, uh, you know, interesting side notes on this conversation we had.
2: I'll follow follow up with that. uh, uh, Follow up that pick with uh, a field guide to understanding, quote, human error, unquote, um, which I'm in the middle of right now. This is talking about uh, this just culture idea that you uh, when people make mistakes the most the most important thing is that you learn the maximum from the mistake regardless of the consequences and uh, the natural human tendency to want st- to want to punish somebody who did something bad is not helpful um and then i'm going to throw in a fun one which is uh, conspiracy peter Thiel, hulk hogan gawker in the anatomy of intrigue by ryan holiday which is just a page turner, number one. It's just a fun book to read. But it also uh, brings up some interesting thoughts about uh, making big social changes.
0: Awesome. And Kent, uh, if people want to follow you online, um, I know you're pretty active on Twitter, um, yes. but are there other places people should be looking, a blog or GitHub or anything like that?
2: Good at Kent Beck is the, is, uh, on Twitter is the easy way to get me. I'm still setting up Kent Beck.com. Um, I did purchase the domain. Um, uh, but I don't have anything really hosted there. Eventually that's where all my stuff will be. Uh, my notes, my uh, blog posts are, are currently, uh, hosted on Facebook.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Kent. It's always fun to talk and, Hopefully we can uh, get you to come back around in another little while.
2: Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Bandwidth for this segment
0: is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit dot com to learn more.